The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the week on The Right Hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook. And we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. The Lord Mayor of Dublin today backed the What's in the Powder campaign, which is aimed at making those taking drugs aware of what's in those drugs. Will it work is the only question. I'm joined by Accident and Emergency Consultant at University College Hospital in Cork, Dr. Chris Luke. Dr. Luke, welcome to the program. Thanks, George. What do, what What's in the powder? What does that mean? What are they going to do? What's the proposal? Uh, this is a very interesting uh, idea, and it's sort of top of the agenda, I suppose, for those who are, uh, you know, for example, pro-legalization. Uh, I suppose the word pejoratively might be used as apologists for for uh, for relaxing drug policy, but I mean, I'm I'm interested in in the health of clubbers. I, I have a long-standing interest in what's called nightclub medicine, which is all of those initiatives aimed at keeping people safe in and around our clubs and super pubs and you know the streets at night. So, in a nutshell, for 20 odd years or so, there's been a, a, a process or a, a policy that's been advocated called pill testing, which really began with ecstasy in the in the early 90s. And this was the idea that it, we knew about dodgy drugs, so you know why don't we test the drugs before you take them to see that they're not dodgy, to see that they, they, they contain what the dealer says they contain uh, to avoid disappointment. The difficulty is that in order to test drugs outside or inside or near a club or on the streets or in festivals, you really need to have a very, very expensive professional scientific setup. You need to have it accredited, you need to have it staffed by you know, scientists, and you need to have an extraordinary array of, of technology, machines, kit uh, on site. And you know, it quickly becomes, I think, unaffordable. Now, you know, I'm not in, in principle against the idea that you know, if, you know, people declare on the side of the tin or the side of the packet what's in this in what they're selling, because as you, as you know, in 2010, we had the head shop situation where packages which said, you know, plant food, not for human consumption, were being sold uh, for millions and millions uh, in head shops and hatches all around our clubs and all our towns. Uh, you know, with with no uh, effort to really confirm what but, was uh, taken. Uh, Dr. Luke, um, who's dreamt up the proposal? Because when I looked at it, I said, first of all, these drugs are illegal. We're not actually saying, you know, uh, uh, pick up your, your packet of your Marlboro or, or uh, a pint of your stout and check, does it matter? They're, they're, they're legal. They're already uh, tested by somebody. So you have a reasonable right to assume what's in it is, is what it says. And if it isn't, you get upset. If you get a packet of aspirin, the FDA or somebody similar has approved it. So if you check it and it's not what it is, you have a case. But how do you have a case against a fella in a dodgy raincoat uh, standing dark outside a club? Well, where, where do you go? Well, that, that uh, in a nutshell, is, is, is my position, uh, George, and has been for many, many years. I mean, I'm 
I'm willing to try anything that ha- can be shown uh, scientifically and medically to be, you know, true. But who dreamt the scheme? Of? Well, this has been this has been policy for for many many years on the part of those who want to liberalise drug laws. You know, these are the people who say that the war on drugs is lost and that, you know, criminalizing and stigmatizing uh, drug takers is the problem. If only we liberalized and softened our approach, you know, we'd have less problems. I'm afraid I don't buy into that. But the Lord Mayor of Dublin has approved that. I mean, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, I presume, isn't an apologist for drugs. Well, I I think there are sort of, there's a sort of slightly fuzzy uh, edge to all of this, which goes along the lines of if you inform people uh, that there may be risks uh, in in what they're taking, if you discuss what they're taking, uh, and you know if we if we apply some sort of scientific uh, methodology to all this, it, you know the problem might go away. It, the problem is it sounds good, but there's a lot of sort of pseudoscience or you know wi- really wishful thinking. But explain something. You see, you must remember here, Doctor Luke. You're you've been dealing with drugs and clubs for as you've said for for years. You're an expert. Somebody like me, because of my generation, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it smells like. I don't know what color it is. Any of these drugs, so I know nothing about this. But presumably, the kids who are the or young people generally who are consuming these drugs know what they're at. But if somebody hands them uh, a, a, a little plastic thing with white powder on it. What's the point of saying to them what's in the powder? I couldn't understand this from the very minute I read it. I couldn't understand how uh, the, the 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 drug taker knows what's in it, or how how they could possibly find out what's in it without going for argument's sake to the Dublin City Analyst. And you wouldn't get a very pleasant reception if you went to the Dublin City Analyst and said to him, "Hello, is this good quality crack or not?" Well, there, there you have it, George. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm basically with you, but I, I am saying to you that, you know, we have a huge issue here in the sense that, you know, Ireland is up there in the top three or four in Europe for drug taking. The approach on the part of the uh, university students' uh, uh, unions throughout this island is that, you know, that's a fact, let's deal with it, and because of the popularity, let's kind of accept it, and let's just inform uh, students of the inverted commas hazards, uh, and, 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 and we'll all move on. I mean, I, I am a skeptic. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm publicly skeptical about that approach. Uh, the, the only thing that seems to work with drug, t- in vertical, is drug testing, is that you, you can engage with people at the door uh, of a club or in and around festivals, and you can, it seems, dissuade some youngsters from taking okay. the drugs at all. All right, but are you serious? Like, uh, yeah. No, I'm not serious. No, no, I, mean, I know that, I'm, but what I mean I'm very is... seriously about uh, offering scepticism of it. I'm trying to point out to, to the students who, who all around this island and the UK think that this somehow is, is, a, is a workable policy. I don't really think it is, but I'm willing to be persuaded if they can come up with some kind of scientifically but, but, uh, uh, proven policy. But, but uh, you know, uh, like I was in Cork last night and, and I was doing the thing in the opera house. So I'm going home late at night and I, I see all the young kids in Cork coming out of pubs and clubs and everything else. Like there's zillions of kids coming out of zillions of pubs and clubs. Where Where is this fella with the Bunsen burner and the, the, the kit? Where's he going to be? Is he going to be at every door? 
Well, I mean, that is, I suppose, the, the ultimate uh, d- destination of this kind of policy. And more, I, I suppose the, the, union, the students' unions are suggesting that in the very big venues, the big gigs, the, the venues where people can afford them, that they will have stalls set up or cubicles and that would-be drug takers will go to these stalls and discuss their, 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 their menu for the evening, have the, uh, the objects of their desire tested with these kits, uh, take, have a little discussion and then decide for themselves, fully informed in inverted commas, uh, whether or not they want to, to take the drugs. So I think people can kind of judge for themselves from that particular scenario whether it's a good idea or not. I, I don't think that safety can, as you suggest, but, but be in these, any way guaranteed. These drugs are illegal. Well, it's not just that they're illegal, George. I mean, that's, that's, that's just the starting point. I mean, and, and in fact, the illegality... You see, George, I keep saying the law is not the problem. It's, it's the biology. It's the effect of the drugs, the, con- the contents of all these drugs on individuals' biology. That's the real problem. So no amount of tinkering with the law, legislation, or debate changes the fact that if you take certain drugs, they will kill you or they will render you, make you very, very ill, or worst of all, make you behave in an, in an appalling fashion. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Luke, A&E consultant at University College Hospital Cork. Anybody who thinks it's a good idea uh, could get on to me. Test kits are very, actually very cheap and easily available. Uh, test kits for what? Like, you, I mean, te- I just don't get it. Uh, and I'm no expert. All of you obviously clearly are experts. Uh, there's scientific proof, if you look and research it, that legal drugs are less harmful than a lot of prescription prescription drugs. Oh, I just hate this stuff. This is exactly what Chris Lucas is terrified of. Uh, people coming up with these kind of ideas. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie in the studio with me is Betty McLaughlin, president of the Institute of Guidance Counselors uh, in Ireland. Betty, welcome to the programme. It's far from guidance counselors I was raised, uh, but children in schools are so much luckier now because they have somebody to advise them on career choices and so on. But you have a problem. Well, if only that was true that we were guaranteed there was somebody in school to advise them. Uh, in 2012, the budget cuts, um, obviously they took the guidance out of the, you know, with one stroke of a pen. The extra hours that were allocated to schools for guidance counselling was, it just slid off the table. Uh, Culminating in um, students, 59% of students, uh, 59% of schools uh, no longer providing guidance counselling for students uh, one to on a one-to-one basis. So, I mean, now we're four years down the line and while there was an attempt in the government to re- reinstate some of these hours, uh, we're back to a situation where hours will be given, a certain amount of hours, two extra hours for every hundred students in schools, but it will be at the um, discretion of management whether they decide to use those hours for guidance counselling or not. But uh, what seems to be the issue for me, interestingly, 
in recent past, talking about uh, special language teachers, for instance, helping uh, as we get more and more migrants, children for whom English isn't the first language, support for autism. Why, why aren't the cuts in education at these kind of crucial areas? I mean, I'm a classic example of somebody who made a bad career choice, which bedeviled my life for 30 years. A career choice is just absolutely vital. It is absolutely essential. And not only do, do when you look now at a situation there in the 1st of February where you had 6,275 students applying to the CAO but not registering any course. Uh, you know, no course preference whatsoever. It just goes to Sorry, show... Sorry, explain. How do you register? You well, can register on the CAO, which is the Central Applications uh, Office System, where, for which gains entry But you don't say any course. You can register and get a CAO number. You are expected to. Uh, in 2007, we had only 800 who didn't register a course. We now have a, a situation where we have 6,275 who haven't registered a course, a course of their preference, literally because they hadn't met with guidance counsellors, they got no advice and didn't know what to write. Now, they will have an opportunity when the system reopens again in May to register courses, but that's that's very late. They're already going to be stressed out doing exams and they will have no they will have but, no uh, focus. but i mean if if the reason six and a bit thousand students put didn't put down a preference and let's assume for the moment it's because they don't know or they didn't get any advice and and then you, you, it's reasonable to assume to come may they're not necessarily going to get any further advice so they're no further advanced no. and they may merely tick a box for the sake of ticking a box Correct, George. And the result of that is very clear uh, in a, a survey that was produced last week only by the HEA, HEA, the Higher Education Authority, showing a 16% dropout in first year of students in third level colleges, colleges, universities and institutes of education, showing a dropout of one in three students who, who don't complete a computer course in first year. But but part of the reason for that is that if you don't have guidance as a child and you're filling the CEO form, you just simply match the numbers to the course. So if you think you're going to get 500, you write down brain surgery, but you mightn't be a possible brain surgeon. And somebody, a, a counsellor, would sort of say, hold on here, I know 500 matches brain surgery, but what you really want to be is a history teacher or whatever... I get that. But does the the counselling in in schools, does it apply to other issues? Because Absolutely. young people have problems, Absolutely. as we all know. Absolutely. We, we have a myriad of problems that we are looking at. You're looking at anger issues. You're looking at behavioural issues. You're looking at students who are at home, children at home, subject to physical, sexual abuse. So does this come across the guidance counsellor's oh, desk? Oh, absolutely. Our remit is personal education vocational education and then then career education, career advice. So the three of... we. Would, so we'd, this isn't just about saying oh, the CAO form. And indeed, a lot of guidance counsellors would say that 75% of their time that they are allocated is taken up with dealing and helping students to, to and supporting students through these different difficulties. Okay. That you you, you had a motion. Yes, the ASTI put forward a motion that they would fight for a full restoration of the pre 2012 budget situation where there would be one guidance counsellor assigned to every 500 students in a school. That would be 22 hours 
restored per school for 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 a guidance council to do their work. Well, now assume I'm a I'm a a, a, a civil servant at the Department of Education. Like I get it, there's 500 kids in the school. They definitely need a guidance counselor, right? Okay, but presumably there are schools with 100 students. Well, it's- so it. it, it it it's it doesn't work out if you kind of do it by mathematical things. I mean, don't you really have to say that sort of every school has to have a guidance counsellor? Don't to you have. really have to say that? In the same way, you have to have an English teacher. Well, you absolutely do, but there has to be some guidelines out there. There are no guidelines at right. the moment from the department. Is it is a hit and miss miss and a disjointed service going around the schools at the moment. So some schools, and we see that the the affluent schools all have a full, have full access their students to guidance counselling and flying in the face of labor labor policy we have desh schools uh, who are who have some many of them there's 189 schools in the country who have no one to one guidance counselors at all now a desh school explain to this a school with a, a disadvantaged area where there isn't uh, where students wouldn't have the, the sometimes the wherewithal financially to, to obviously to go for private guidance counselling and also they would be in a school where there are socioeconomic problems in particular and they would gain that status and coming from a culture where their, stu- where their parents may not have had access to third level or have gone on further than their leaving cert and are not in a position to advise these students from their own perspective and these students need a lot of encouragement to make them believe in themselves. They don't lack aspiration but they do lack the wherewithal as to how to get access to college. Well, I, I remember I did something with a desk school in relation to a charity. And I remember the guidance counselor telling me that the charity was vitally important because it actually kept the kids in the school. They would have left the school, but they had a focus now to do this, raise money, and they were bagging stuff in supermarkets or whatever. So, I, again, I'm... There's not to have a connection between disadvantage and guidance seems strange. It's absolutely, it, it, it really baffles me at times, you know. So how important is the motion? The motion is very important because the TUI are, uh, and the ASTI and both, both conferences and have come out and unanimously voted uh, to fight for that full restoration for guidance counselling and we need it. Oh, we certainly need it. It's perfectly obvious. Uh, six, over... Over 6,000 students not filling in a CEO form with a choice seems just mind-boggling. Betty McLaughlin, President of the Institute of Guidance Counselors Ireland. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, I'm joined now by a regular guest on the programme, Robert Schmuel, uh, Professor of History at Notre Dame University. And um, he, he he's in Ireland, of course, for the cel- celebrations and commemorations. But equally importantly is his new book, Ireland's Exiled Children, uh, America and the Easter Rising, and it's published by Oxford University Press, available at all good bookshops like Easton's and Hodges, Figgis and all the rest. And Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, George. Congratulations on the book, and we're going to talk about it because, of course, it's about the rising, and here we are. But I thought I would ask you what you thought of the the weekend, the commemorations this weekend? I was uh, enormously impressed with everything that happened 
on Easter Sunday and on Easter Monday. In America, we tend to be a future-oriented people. We're always looking ahead. Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again. Over here in Ireland, you revere your history. You take it seriously. You have panel discussions on it throughout an Easter Monday. And for someone coming from America, having just finished this book that you uh, mentioned, I thought that Ireland clearly had done so much in the way of organization to mount the kind of commemoration that it had over those days, and which, quite frankly, I think is going to continue, so that I, I leave this country, and I will leave this weekend, with an enormous amount of admiration for how Ireland has looked at its past, but I also think that it will serve as a springboard to, in a way, a better Ireland with greater understanding of some of the uh, some of the past, some of the incidents, some of the ideas that continue to swirl around this island. I think you might be right, because funny enough, I approach these commemorations quite cynically. Uh, I'd been around for the 50th anniversary and the 60th anniversary, and, you know, I thought there's a parade down O'Connell Street. But what we've done this time, I think radio actually has done it proud. There's been some, across uh, all the stations, uh, there's been a wonderful amount of information. And the other great thing that historians have done is they've talked about things that we never talked about, like the children, the women, the Irish soldiers who were in the British Army, and so on and so on. You have undoubtedly, I have to tell you, Robert Smoot, you have undoubtedly done something like that, which we didn't understand. Ireland's Exiled Children is now in the book, but the subtext is brilliant. America and Easter Rising, because this is where uh, I think there's been a lot of misinformation. And uh, what you've done is also interesting, and I want to ask you why. It's a kind of a four-chapter book, which sort of really surprised me. What you've done is you've picked four people. John Devoy, Eamon de Valera, and then Joyce Kilmer, and then Woodrow Wilson, who, who of course, was the president of America at the time. It all starts in 1842. John Devoy is born. Devoy is hugely important. Why is that? When he is exiled, and he indeed is an exiled child to America, when he arrives in America in 1871, he experiences the freedoms that the United States afforded him. He ultimately became a naturalized American citizen. But every day of his life, he looked to Ireland and he looked to a free and independent Ireland. So he devoted all of his energies, all of his uh, resources to that. He was he was a bachelor. I'm fond of saying that uh, he didn't have a wife. He didn't have a mistress. His mistress and his wife would have been a free Ireland. And he had the interesting position of being the head of Clanagale, which was the American counterpart to the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And he raised money clandestinely 
and shipped it over here, and it helped in terms of buying the arms and propaganda and, and newspapers and all the rest for the people involved in the rising. But then, and this is what's so interesting, he also ran a weekly newspaper, the Gaelic American, where he would be the cheerleader of the cause of Irish freedom and independence. So you have this person who is working in secret and in public on behalf of Ireland. And I use him as a figure to look back into the 19th century to the Irish who came over to America who were harboring notions that there would ultimately be a free Ireland so that he becomes the figure of the past who contributes greatly to the present. And then the last figure of the book, as you mentioned, is Eamon de Valera, who becomes the figure of the future through the 20th century. But uh, Devoy was an extremist, really, wasn't yes. he, of the time? I mean, he really believed in... Physical in, force. Yeah, because of bombing campaigns and so on in Britain. Isn't that right? That's true. And he was quite friendly with Tom Clark, who is the first signatory of the proclamation. Tom Clark, people often forget, was a naturalized American citizen. But Clark appears in a book, but, but, but isn't a headline chapter as such. The name I didn't recognize really at all was Joyce Kilmer. What's that about? Joyce Kilmer was a very popular writer at this particular time, most well-known as a poet, but he made his living as a writer for the New York Times magazine, the Sunday magazine. And shortly after the rising, wrote a long article calling what had happened here in Dublin the Poets' Revolution. Poets march in the van of revolt. And it, in America, put the stamp on the actions that had taken place, that it literary people were involved. He himself is a literary figure, writes a well-known poem called Easter Week that is published uh, shortly after the rising. In August of 1916, he sits down with a woman who had fought in the GPO and writes her account in long first-person paragraphs, um, quoting her and in fact, that is the appendix of the book, and there's a woman's voice to end the, uh, the whole saga. What is interesting about Kilmer is that he wrote about the rising. The article I just mentioned was surreptitiously sent back to Ireland and published, and the newspaper got in trouble for uh, doing that. But just as importantly, he was not of Irish background, and yet Every time he was asked, what is your bloodline, he would say, I am Irish. And ultimately, he enlists in the Fighting 69th, the Fighting Irish Regiment, and is killed during 
a battle in France during the Great War. Now, my guest is Robert Schmuel, professor of history at uh, Notre Dame University. Who has, uh, the, the university has a huge connection with uh, some of the uh, television and radio things we've heard over uh, this weekend's commemoration. His book, though, by Oxford University Press, is available in Irish bookshops. It's called Ireland's Exiled Children, America and the Easter Rising. Kilmer was interesting for me because I knew nothing about him. Name didn't mean anything, and I suspect it won't mean a lot to the people who buy the book. But now he's doing this job in America. Devoy is raising money. He's he's infusing the spirit of revolt into people like Clark and others. And then the president, this academic, Woodrow Wilson. Um, many people make connections between Wilson and Obama, both academics and so on. The president of America, as as we saw with Clinton when he sent George Mitchell here, the effect he had on our, Wilson is completely ambivalent here. What, and and this is so important for Ireland. America is so important, and the president is ambivalent. What's going on here? Woodrow Wilson was playing both sides of the road at the same time. One of the reasons that I decided to do the book is I saw the complexity of the rising within the context of American history at the time, which is that Woodrow Wilson is seeking re-election in the summer and fall of 1916. And I became interested in how he was reacting to what had happened here in Ireland. And what I find is a figure who wants to be as far away from it as possible. He doesn't want any complication to his re-election. True, but he's a Democrat. He, obviously, the Irish vote's very important. So now he's trying to he's, he's trying to balance the Irish vote. His own background is unionist and, and Northern Ireland. Tyrone, one of his grandfathers comes from Tyrone. The other one comes from Ulster as well. So he's trying to play both sides of the fence from a voting point of view, and he already is is got a situation in America in terms of World War One. I. I mean, he's not a president who has been well has been dealt well by history. I think history has been a bit tough on him, but he, we have to recognize he's in a very difficult place here. He is in a difficult place, but Woodrow Wilson is also the figure who gave us the phrase self-determination for small nation. And when he uttered that phrase, and Irish people, both here in Ireland and over in America, when they heard that phrase, they certainly thought he was referring at least partially to Ireland. Because, of course, his idea of the League of Nations and all this kind of thing it was going to be, there weren't going to be any wars, and these small nations were now going to have independence. You can see that resonating with Irish-Americans who didn't vote for him, but he didn't mean that for the Irish who were fighting back home. He didn't mean that. He, didn't, he wanted to stay away from that. So that in the chapter, I not only focus on how he reacted to 1916, but I carry it forward into his time over in Paris for the peace conference and later. And before he went over to the peace conference, he made the decision. Ireland would not enter the space of the conference. They would not bring up the fate of Ireland. And you had people from commissions of Irish Americans who went to Paris to plead with him to put Ireland on the agenda. 
and Woodrow Wilson never did. Now, what's interesting, George, to me, as somebody interested in politics, is that he ran for re-election in 16 and desperately wanted to run again in 1920. My reading of all of the papers related to this is that he played this chameleon figure right as long as he could in terms of trying to keep the Irish Americans and their votes on his side without doing anything substantively for them. Then he is out in Colorado trying to whip up support for the League of Nations in the Treaty of Versailles. He becomes ill, he has a stroke, and uh, Mrs. Wilson becomes America's first president. Which is another interesting story. But we go finally uh, to my bete noir, of course, because me being a Michael Garland's man, I can't really say anything nice about Eamon de Valera, but you do. One of the key things you do is you nail a myth, which astonishingly is still believed, and believed by me until I read your book. We all thought the reason Dev wasn't executed was because he was an American citizen. Not true, say you. Uh, Not true, says Dev, in 1969, (laughs) which is probably more important. What I try to do in that chapter, George, is discuss and interrogate all of the reasons why Eamon de Valera escaped execution. Every major profile that is written in the press about Eamon de Valera, and he comes back again and again as a figure in the American press, mentions that it was his American birth that saved his life. In 1963, John Kennedy is here for his one state visit as president, and the last night reaches across the table, leans across the table and says, Mr. President, what saved you in 1916? And the older president of Ireland says, Mr. President, I was born in your country, but there were many days when I could hear the key in the door and they were coming to get me. But then in 1969, along comes Eamon de Valera, then president of Ireland, who sits down in his own handwriting, says that I was born in America would not have had an impact on my uh, reprieve, so that he pulls back from it. I think that it was a way for him to uh, sort of become more than 100% Irish at that time, that, uh, that he was cleaning up uh, history. But more than that, and I think the real reason is that his... Court-martial came late. The British were getting tired of it, and they were paying a huge price in the terms of public opinion. And uh, ultimately, he is saved. But he never, and this is interesting, he never throughout his long career, except at the very end, tried to pull it back or distance himself from it. Well, there you have it. It's a great read, believe me. Robert Schmuel, Ireland's Exiled Children, America and the Easter Rising, published by Oxford University Press, available at all good bookshops in Ireland. Bob has taken a very interesting route uh, where he has looked at these four key figures in, at this time. And it, I just learned so much. I thought I knew it all. And, and Bob, like all good historians, has pulled back the curtain. Uh, Bob, thank you for joining me and every success with the book. Thank you very much, George. 
The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's The Right Hook with George. Of course, it's the Friday Right Hook indeed and that means that in the studio with me is the... uh, how would I describe Alison Spittle, really? Today, in sympathy with Belgium, uh, she has dressed in Belgian national colours, which may be very good for flags, Alison Spittle. That's me. But, but isn't great for dresses and no. skirts and whatever. Like I tell you, you are, you are worse than Joan Rivers, so you are. You, <laughs> you're reincarnated. She's dead, but she's alive in you, George. So yes, I do see myself rather as a Joan Rivers figure, I must really? say. Really? Yeah. I also thought what was very attractive was mm. uh, the tea cosy you borrowed from the kitchen and put <laughs> on your head. It's cold outside, George. I should be allowed to. It's a green, it's a perfectly fine green hat, so it is. It's a I'm, green hat, it's not a tea cosy. No, no. Tea cosy would have a hole, surely. This would be the worst tea cosy ever. You wouldn't be able to pour any tea out of that. Right, it would okay. taste a bit of well, blood. let's get to the point. Yes. What is What the are point? you talking about? Well, George, like every week, I talk about my week. And sometimes I do stuff and sometimes I don't. Right. And this week... Like buy strange hats. That's exa- exactly it. And that, or right. dress in the national colours of Belgium. That's, you're never going to let me get away with that. <laughs> but what what I've done this week is I've been so busy. I, I've been busy writing and there's a deadline coming up like this Saturday and I haven't left the house at all, George. So the only respite I've had has been watching a bit of daytime TV. Oh, right. Okay. So now, uh, because I've been busy too, but I've been really busy. I don't have time to watch television. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose most people listening will be saying, how could she be busy if she's watching television? But I won't ask you that embarrassing question. I suppose, you know, you sit down, you get a bit to eat and you just watch whatever's on at that time. what are you watching? Watching Judge Judy. I love Judge Judy. What do you think of Judy? Do you watch Judge Judy? Oh. You'd really like her, I think, George. I know. I have seen her as I flash through the channels. But oh, I flash good. through Judge Judy immediately like I don't stop. Really? But she's got, she's great. I thought, George, she's got a sense of justice that you get straight away. But she takes you, no baloney. But you know? I gave these two, I, like I watched her once, I think, before I... I vomited up my dinner. Oh, um, gosh. Do you I, not like any daytime TV? Well, I don't like Judge Judy. If these two idiots come on and, and one of them just says he's mowing, he's throwing his waste lawn material onto my lawn <laughs> and then, you know. That's, that's, that's a doozy. That's always happening in Judge Judy, <laughs> the lawn material. Okay, well, if you were the judge there, how would you sort that out? Like, if, like, what kind of, um, this, imagine if it was in Ireland, a kind of dispute. Do you know who the have? greatest judge of all time was? Who? Who now? Solomon. The King biblical. Sol- yeah. You're bringing up the Bible. Yes. <laughs> because Solomon was faced by two women. Yes. Who, you know the story? I do. I've seen it in The Simpsons, George. Oh, was it in The Simpsons? It was, yeah. There was I thinking I was giving you something. <laughs> no. The, and this is where they were fighting over the baby. Yeah. And Solomon said, give him half each. Yeah. And then Solomon knew that the real mother would give up her baby rather than have the baby cut in half. And 
the the non-real mother wouldn't mind having the baby cut up. That was what? Solomon's theory. That non-real mother now needs to have a word for herself now that she'd rather, you know, that she'd rather that happen. She's now, afraid. this happened in 2000 BC, so yeah. she's not around like. You, you can't talk to her. But in The Simpsons, they had Homer and he was... Um, he was looking after a pie and they wanted to cut the pie in oh, half. Oh, right. So he didn't want to cut in half. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't anyway, know. Anyway, Judge Judy, right? Skip Judge Judy. Skip, or, you don't or, like Judge Judy, or, no? What else have you watched? Shortland Street. Have you ever seen that? No, that, that is terrible. It's the worst program I've ever seen in my life. It's a New Zealand soap. Well, funny enough, when I was uh, in my unemployed period... Yes. I, I want to hear about this, actually. What did you I do? used to watch Neighbours. Did you? Yeah, but this is Neighbours was only starting. Was it good back then, was it? I didn't Was know. it hard-hitting? <laughs> did it lose its way? <laughs> but it wasn't hard-hitting, no. But Shortland Street is based where? In New Zealand. So it's a kind of medical drama. It's kind of, I, I don't know, to be honest with you, when I was unemployed... I used to have, and I'm not anymore, I'm very happy, but I used to have, like, have obsessions about daytime TV. So I brought, do you remember the, the show, it's called Pointless, it's a TV game show? It's, You've lost me again. It's on, a, it's on a quarter past five on BBC Two, and I was so obsessed with it that uh, when I first met my boyfriend, we bonded over our mutual love of Pointless because we used to record it. This is what you had in common. Genuinely. And that's that's what made me think, oh, no, he's the, he's the If one you're for me. looking for a wife <laughs> or a husband, ask yeah. them, do they watch Pointless? It's a, it's a recipe for the perfect relationship. Oh, it really is. Now, do you know what I it's used? Blue, the yeah. game show I used to watch yeah. um, was Jeopardy. Jeopardy? Yeah. Oh, that's the American one. When I was one. unemployed, yeah. Was that all right? I never because I, the quizmaster had a hit record. One of my favorite hit records. What was his? What was the hit record? I've the fought, deck of cards. The deck of cards. I nearly thought you were going to say that the host had a hysterectomy, and I was like, "What's that got to do with <laughs> why you'd like a host or what?" Right. But, so yeah. okay, Shortland Street, not great. Pointless. Your husband loves it. Your boyfriend loves it. Yeah. Uh, because we went over to England to see it being filmed and everything. We were that. Big of a fan. You went into the studio. Got we went tickets. to the studio. We got tickets. And uh, is it ITV or BBC? BBC, and they filmed two two episodes in per... where Manchester. No, it's Ealing. Ealing. We we went to Ealing. Right. And uh, we when we when we went to London, people asked us, "Oh, what are you going to do? What? Are, why are you over here?" And we said, "Oh, we're going to watch. We're going to watch Pointless being filmed." And everyone kept going, are you okay? And we're like, yes. <laughs> well, we're I'd say they weren't, they weren't worried about Pointless. They were worried <laughs> about your Belgian outfit. I'd say so. I don't know. But I, I loved uh, I, I, I loved being there. It was great because we saw, uh, if you haven't seen Pointless, there's no point telling you, but it's very hard to there's win. There's a lot of people listening That's who saw true. it. Yeah, it's very hard to win Pointless. It's, a, it's an incredibly skilled game. Oh, is it? And yeah, like it, it would be rare for someone to win. The money would roll over like All 10 All right, times. they don't ask you like, What's the capital of Belgium? They do, but they do. That's true. You're not going to let this go. Well, it's such a dramatic outfit. I tell you now. Next week, I'm going to come in in a black plastic bag, like the the trick or treaters of Halloween, and we'll we'll see now. Okay. Uh, The other, I'm trying to think what else used I watch. Anyway, I used to watch Jeopardy, Neighbours, and I'm sure there's... What about oh, Dallas? No. Yeah? I used to watch Countdown. <gasps> I love Countdown. Yeah. I'm very good at do the Maths Round. Do you watch Countdown? I do, I do. Not recently. Which one are you good at? I'm good at the Maths Round myself. 
And I wasn't good at maths in school. Oh, where they strange. say 301 or something. Yeah, I love it. I, I won't lie, George. I do pause the telly, though. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be working it out. <laughs> and then I'll unpause and I'll feel clever. <laughs> but, it's, but, it's but I, TV. Well, now, when I was doing Countdown, it's quite interesting when I was watching it. Yeah. I never tried to answer, like, any of the questions, you know? Really? Yeah, when your man said, Consonant, vowel, consonant, consonant, and then yeah. up came X W Y V K S. Yeah, I never tried to make a word out of it. What did you do then? I just watched it. I see. I fancied you one, Carl oh, Voderman. Carol. She, yeah. yeah, she she is. Uh... So I used to just wait until she appeared. Like, well, she's now she's on a she's on Countdown meets eight out of ten cats a lot. Countdown meets who? Eight out of ten cats. It's. It's basically an adult version of Countdown, so people do rude words for the conundrums, and it's very, it's very adult. But and is it daytime? No, it's past the watershed, but Carol's still there, so she is. Carol, is she? Yeah. And one more, one last uh, daytime? Daytime TV, let me think, uh, the last bit of daytime TV that I've, oh, I watch uh, Storage Wars. UK, have you ever seen that, George? I've seen Storage Wars USA. Yeah, well, Storage I've War- never watched a complete episode, but I usually kind of, Tip in, get you a couple get of minutes. You get sucked in and then realise you're watching Storage Wars and have to yeah. switch off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do that too. No. I do that. No. But the problem is it takes me to, uh, like a, it's like Come Down With Me. If I watch Come Down With Me, one episode, I'll be in for the whole lot, George. I have to switch it off or I'll be three hours leaving the house, you know. Do you know you? the other thing I was going to say to you because I was impressed by the makeup, yeah. the, the red the lipstick. But I'm interested because people are on radio so they don't know that you wear glasses perhaps. For That's the, right. true. That's yeah. true. Did you ever, because I only mm. use glasses for reading, but uh, did you ever try contact lenses? Well, actually, would you believe it, George? I'm trying it this week. They're going to teach me how to put them in. Woo! We talk you know? about that next week. <laughs> I didn't know that was the day you are. <laughs> we must be connected uh, telepathically. We must be, George. We must Alison be. Spittle with her week every Friday. She pops in here dressed in a different national flag. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.